Uh, well, uh, we're continuing in our series uh, through the book of Exodus. And today, uh, we're looking at the first of the ten plagues. And so, uh, we're going to have a, almost a series within a series on the, the plagues uh, over Egypt. And the first plague is the plague of blood. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Exodus chapter 7, beginning with verse 14. Exodus chapter 7, verse 14. And trusting that you're there, may God bless the reading of his holy and inspired word. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, And all the water in the Nile turned into blood, and the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full, day, seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Amen. The word of the Lord. As we work through our text today, we're going to see three things. First, the purpose of the plague. The purpose of the plague. Second, the power of the plague. And finally, the effect of the plague. So the purpose, the power, and the effect of the plague. Now, a couple weeks ago, um, I was having an honest conversation with one of our church members about the Exodus series, and he told me very humbly that Exodus was difficult for him because of how supernatural it was. And I don't know if you guys have felt that, but, but he honestly said that. He was more comfortable with other parts of the Bible, like Paul's letters or Jesus' teachings in the Gospels. Those parts were just more accessible and applicable for him. He was an engineer, and because of his education and profession, it was difficult for him to believe things like the ten plagues or the parting of the Red Sea. And as this brother shared with me, I really did understand. I really did understand. I didn't rebuke him for his lack of faith or anything like that. Um, And as we go over the next, uh, the ten plagues over the next several weeks, I think there will be many of us here that would resonate with that, that will be thinking, do I really believe that this happened? Do you really believe that the waters of the Nile turned into blood? That God caused Egypt to be in total darkness for three days? And so your struggle may be historical. Maybe your struggle is scientific. You're like, I I just don't understand the science behind that. How could that happen? 
Well, many Christians have struggled with these miracles, and they've tried to come up with naturalistic explanations for the plagues. For example, uh, one commentator argued that the Nile turning, to the, turning into blood was symbolic, and in fact, it was a red algae that spread throughout the Nile and caused a chain of events, right? It took out all of the oxygen from the water, and all the fish died. And so because the water had no oxygen and it was polluted with dead fish, then all the frogs came out of the Nile, right? And the frogs came out of the Nile into the dry land and, and, and bothered all the Egyptians. And then as the frogs died, then gnats and flies swarmed about because that's what happens when you have a bunch of dead animals all around the land. Then because of that disease spread, right, uh, throughout Egypt, causing the livestock to die and the people to break out into boils. So far, it's kind of plausible, right? Kind of makes sense, right? Then the locusts is just a freak moment of insect migration. I mean, we had all those butterflies migrate, right, just a couple of months ago. through That was weird. That was so odd. Same thing, the locusts, freak migration, uh, hail, just natural storm came out of nowhere. Uh, it kind of works. It's plausible up until the last two plagues, the plague of darkness, right, and the plague of the angel of death that passes over Egypt and took the firstborn of every Egyptian household. I want to encourage you not to try and explain away the Bible uh, just through naturalistic uh, explanations. Instead, I want to encourage you today to read the Bible supernaturally, to read the Bible in faith. For the text is clear. All these events occurred as a direct result of God's command and immediately upon Moses' actions. They began and they ended according to God's word. Right? Seven days passed, and the waters were returned, right? all according to God's word. They show that God has authority over all of creation. This is why the Bible calls God the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts and the God of wonders. And so as we look to God's word today, would you open your hearts, would you open your minds to the God of wonders and the Lord of hosts? Also, it's not just Moses, but also Pharaoh and the Egyptian magicians who interpret these acts, not just as naturalistic events. They see it as supernatural acts of God. They're trying to match God's miraculous works. Moses isn't interpreting natural events as the signs of God's anger. People do that today. I'm sure you've heard and observed people who try to interpret things like earthquakes and storms and famines as, as signs of God's judgment. Maybe it's an earthquake that strikes Japan or a tsunami that afflicts Indonesia. And then people will say it's because they are not Christian nations and God is judging them. Friends, that's after the fact spiritualizing. Okay? That's after the fact spiritualizing. God did not declare that he would do that right, as a sign of judgment. Uh, it's just kind of people who are spiritualizing and trying to be prophetic. But in Exodus and throughout the Bible, it's the other way around. It's not things happen and then God's messengers try to explain and interpret it. No, God speaks first. He declares first and then he confirms it with his work. Then he confirms it with signs and wonders. This is what happens over and over again in the scriptures. He declares that he will work. He declares that he will act. He will bring judgment. He will bring plagues. And then he backs his word with his power. He backs and reinforces and confirms his word with signs and miracles. Others may struggle in a different manner. Perhaps you don't have an issue with the history of, of the Bible. Maybe you don't have an issue with the miraculous. You think, hey, God is God. 
He can do whatever he wants. He's the almighty creator. I have faith. But you struggle with the morality of God's acts. Why would God inflict Egypt with so much suffering? If God knew the first nine plagues wouldn't work, why did he enact them at all? Why didn't he just jump to the 10th plague, save a lot of time, right? And, and just go ahead and go uh, move forward with the deliverance of Israel. Why would he inflict the animals with so much suffering? The hail falls on the animals, right? Boils afflict the animals, right? The livestock, they die, causing the fish to die in the Nile, right? The cows didn't do anything wrong, right? Why, why are they being subject to God's wrath? Even more so, the idea of God striking down the firstborn children of Egypt seems morally reprehensible. It seems morally heinous. And this is difficult to accept when you and I believe that God is good, when we believe that God is love, right? How could God do such things? But we should be careful never to pit the morality of God against the holiness of God. Even more so, we should be very careful not to become moral judges over God, as if he must answer to us, as if he must explain his acts and his reasons and his works to us, as if we are judging him. All of this, this is why we must pause to remember the great purpose of the plagues. And God actually tells us why he's doing what he does. In verses 16 and 17 in our passage, this is what he says. And you shall say to him, Pharaoh, right, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. There are two main purposes for the plagues. And the first is that we would know that God is the God of the Bible, that he is the true and living God. Do you remember what Pharaoh said to Moses when Moses first went before him? The first time Moses went before Pharaoh and said, let my people go, let Israel go and worship and serve in the wilderness. Pharaoh said in chapter five, who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. That's what Pharaoh says. I don't know Yahweh, and I don't care about what he says. I will not obey a God I do not know. I will not humble myself and submit to a God I have no concern regarding. Well, through the 10 plagues, God is revealing himself to an unbelieving Pharaoh in an unbelieving Egypt. You don't know who I am? I will show you who I am. You doubt my power and authority? I will show you my power and authority. He is showing himself. He is revealing himself to be a God who is faithful to his people. He is revealing himself as a God who is Lord over all creation. And he's revealing himself as a God who is holy. A God who brings judgment upon the wicked. A God who is not okay with people disobeying his commands, disobeying his word, disobeying his will. Theologian Peter Enns writes, God chooses to fight with weapons that no one but he has at his disposal and that only he can command. This series of attacks on Egypt removes all doubt as to who the victor will be. Right? Very important. Right? But very profound, right? God could have just 
like just organized and gave the Hebrews a lot of strength and victory. They could have just rebelled against Egypt. Maybe they could have fought off Egypt because they were growing in such number. But God wanted to use instruments. He wanted to use weapons that only he could marshal. Only he could have authority and lordship over to show that there would be no doubt who God is and what he is doing. The second purpose of the plagues is not only for us to know the Lord, it's for us to worship the Lord. Okay, it's for us to worship the Lord. Why is the Lord fighting for Israel? Why does he care so much about these Hebrews, this small and tiny nation? He does all of these things. He's going to enact all of these 10 plagues, not just for the sake of liberation. He's not just anti-slavery. There is a greater purpose that God has. It's so that they can serve him and worship him in the wilderness. In the Hebrew, the word used for serve in verse 16, it's the same as worship, okay? Abed, right? Um, It's the same as worship. Israel is saved so that they can become a worshiping people. They're saved and liberated so they can become a worshiping community that is wholly devoted to God. Brothers and sisters, the same is for us. All that God does in your life It's not merely for your comfort. It's not merely for your well-being. It's not merely for your benefit. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I want to ask, is this happening in your life? As God answers your prayers, as he provides for you, I know that oftentimes we do talk about suffering. We talk about persevering in faith. But I also want to say, in so many ways, we are prospering. We're prospering with work, with education, with health, with relationships. God has given us so many gifts, so many blessings, but I want to ask, are you, in turn, serving the Lord as a result of those blessings? Are you worshiping the Lord as a result of his good gifts in your life? Or are you just then looking to the next thing that you need? Once that box is checked off, are you saying, God, now I need this? Now I'd like to request this. Now I'm praying for this. Now I'm seeking this. Is that how you are treating God? Is that how you are relating to God and dealing with God? Brothers and sisters, all of God's works in our life should turn into doxology. Glory to God. Worship of God. That is why God enacts the plagues over Egypt. To free his people and make them a worshiping community. This is what God wants to do in our lives as well as he delivers us from sin, as he delivers us from the idols of this world. He wants to free us so that we might become servants of God, worshipers of God. The second point today is the power of the plague. The first plague begins at the Nile. Moses meets Pharaoh there and he tells him he is going to strike the Nile. Why does God begin with this river? It's because it was considered Egypt's primary source of life and power. The Greek historians, when they referred to Egypt, they said this. They said, all know that Egypt is the Nile, and Nile is Egypt. Okay. All know that Egypt is the Nile, and Nile is Egypt. Egyptians would sing a hymn about the Nile, saying, Hail to thee, O Nile, that issues from the earth and comes to keep Egypt alive. They would sing that song. They would recite that hymn. Oh, hail the Nile, you are keeping us alive. To the Egyptians, the Nile was everything. They were polytheists, and they attributed a multitude of gods to the Nile. One was Hapi, their god of fertility. 
Another was new, which was the God of life. Finally, there was a God named Osiris, who was the protector of the Nile. The Nile was so important, they, they created a God to protect the Nile, right, for them. But as Moses struck the Nile with his staff, the river turned into blood, and it showed that the gods of Egypt were helpless and hapless, that Yahweh was the almighty God. Verse 19 tells us that the blood was everywhere. The fish died. The Nile stank. The people couldn't drink it. They became so desperate, they had to start digging wells to access underground water. One commentator writes, with a single blow, God caused a food and water shortage, a transportation shutdown, a financial disaster, and a spiritual crisis. God's attack on the Nile was a direct attack on Egypt's idolatry. Church, what would it look like for God to attack our idolatry? What would it look like for God to expose our idolatry? What is the source of our strength, our security, and our identity? What's the one thing that if you lost would cripple you and ruin you? Identify that, and there is your idol. Okay. For us, it's probably not a river. It's probably not the L.A. River, if you've ever gone by it. It's not much of a river. We don't sing songs to that weird thing, whatever it is, right? But maybe it's our children. Maybe it's our jobs. Maybe it's our, our real estate, our homes, our 401ks, our ability, our health. God, if you took my health away from me, if you took my abilities away from me, I would be nothing. May our strength and our portion be the Lord. May he be our portion and our strength. This leads us to our last point, the effect of the plague. What happened as a result of this plague? Verses 22 and verse 23 tell us that the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. Okay? They wanted to prove that they were and their gods were just as powerful as the God of Israel. Right. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned and went to his, into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. Isn't it funny that Pharaoh is comforted by the fact that his magicians were able to turn water into blood just as Moses did? It would make more sense if they were able to reverse the plague right? That would be awesome, right? That would show power that they could reverse the acts and the works of Yahweh, but they weren't able to do that. In fact, they just added to the problem. They needed water. They made more blood, right? right? But Pharaoh is comforted by that. What we see is the first plague had no effect on Pharaoh's hardened heart. He's unmoved by the supernatural work of God. He is unmoved by the authoritative word of God. He's even unmoved by the suffering of his people. As they have no water to drink, as the Nile is stinking, as they are just scrambling for clean and fresh water, he doesn't even care. He is unmoved by the needs of his people. God has commanded him to let Israel go, but he remains in disobedience. God will promise more judgment and calamity to Egypt, and yet his heart will remain hardened and unchanged. Brothers and sisters, how about you? Is your heart hardened just as Pharaoh was towards the word and works of God? Is your heart today filled with pride and unbelief? 
Are you in active disobedience against God? And you feel okay with it because you have a job, you have relationships, you have health, you have hobbies. In every other category of life, besides the spiritual, besides your eternal and most essential relationship with God, everything else is fine, so you don't care that much about being disobedient to God. You easily dismiss and disregard the word of God in your life, your comfort, your earthly power, your earthly confidence has blinded you against God. The 10 plagues are not just the story of God's judgment over Egypt and for the liberation of Israel. It's a foreshadowing of God's ultimate judgment over the world in Revelation. Let me just say that again, okay? We have this tendency to just read Exodus and the 10 plagues, and we're just like, that happened then? That was for the Hebrews. Cool story for for Moses. Cool story for, for Aaron. I'm glad they made two movies out of it, The Ten Commandments, right? And then The Prince of Egypt. And if you just want to get refreshed with the series, watch those movies. It's cool, right? They would be cool. Um, And uh, in no particular order. Um, And and we have this tendency just to think of those as like historical, biblical events, right? But I want to tell you, they look forward. They foreshadow the judgment of God in Revelation. In Revelation 16, John testifies about his vision of the seven bowls of God's coming wrath. The second and the third bowls, they remind us directly of this plague of blood in Exodus. This is what John writes in Revelation 16. The second angel poured out his blood into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, just And true are your judgments. The blood represents the judgment of God all throughout the scriptures. Every sacrifice that is laid upon the altar in worship, it's not just God, I thank you, God, I love you, so we're going to slay this bull or this goat. No, all of the sacrifices, all of the shedding of blood represent the judgment of God that sinners deserve. It is the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. And just as he judged Egypt in the Exodus, on the last day, brothers and sisters, Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. Friends, do you believe that? Do you believe that? That Jesus will return and he will judge us according to all of our works, according to our allegiance. Have we trusted in Christ or not? All of the acts that we have done in the darkness, they will be exposed and brought into the light. Do you believe? Two weeks ago, uh, I was grabbing lunch in Montrose. um, uh, And uh, I I left my car and I parked. I was like, it's Montrose, no problem. And I actually had my car broken into and my bag was stolen. And so my laptop was stolen. Yeah, it was really sad, a huge bummer. Uh, Don't worry, that's been taken care of. Uh, But... um, um, but it made me realize, man, I'm so careless. My wife, Alice, she's always reminding me, don't leave your bag in broad daylight in the car, right? She always says that. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever, 
right? Dismiss it, right? I'm like, yeah. you know, it, I've never gotten my bag and never, I've never lost my laptop, right? Even from like college when I got my first, I never lost my laptop. So I was like, man, never going to happen to me, right? Never going to happen to me. And then in broad daylight, after church, 3 p.m., downtown Montrose, boom, laptop gone, car broken into, right? And I realized that I have this tendency to think that nothing bad is going to happen to me. I just really do. I'm like, oh, that happens to other people. They get robbed, right? They, 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 they you know, they, they should have, you know, driven, like, slower. I see all these, do you guys see all the cops that, that pull all the cars over? And I'm like, yeah, that's them, right? But I'm going to drive 80 to church because I'll, I'll be okay. God's going to protect me, right? <laughs> I have this tendency to think nothing bad is going to happen to me. So I don't take warnings seriously or to heart. My wife warns me over and over again, and I just shrug it off, right? It's like good advice, but not serious enough. I don't take it to heart, so I don't do anything about it. I don't change, right? I don't change. And I want to say, there are some of us here today, we do the same thing with the judgment of God. Whenever a preacher comes up and he reminds us that Jesus Christ will come to judge the living and the dead, when he reminds us that the Christ will come in full power, in glory, right? That revelation is real. It tells us and it promises, it prophesies the judgment of God, right? And the saving and redemption of his people and his creation. We, we, we acknowledge it mentally, but our hearts are hardened. Our hearts remain unchanged. But church, today, I want to urge you to take this warning to heart. God is just. He will come to judge the living and the dead, all of your deeds, all of your sins, all of your idolatries and disobedience. Though you think they're no big deal now, though you think you'll deal with them later, though you think they're tolerable brothers and sisters before a holy God, they are not. All of those things will be exposed. All of those things will be brought before light, brought into light before a holy and righteous judge, and he is just. But this is why Christ came, so that he would shed his blood for us. And through his bloodshed work on the cross, he would take the judgment of God, he would drink the wrath of God upon himself as our substitute save us and atone for our sins. Friends, if, if God's judgment makes you uneasy, if you don't like the idea of God being a judging God, a holy God, a wrathful God who deals with sin in the most serious, mighty way, you will never understand the cross of Christ. If you do not accept God as judge, you will never understand what it means for Christ to be your savior. For on the cross, he incurred the full judgment and wrath of God in your place. Brothers and sisters today, would you look to Christ who shed his blood for you? Would you repent? Would you believe? For at the foot of the cross is our only place of refuge. For in the shadow of the cross, for underneath the grace and power of the cross, you and I can escape the judgment of God that each and every one of us deserve. Would you repent and would you believe? For the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we acknowledge you as the Lord of all creation. And though in many ways we, we struggle intellectually to comprehend these signs and wonders that you enacted over Egypt nearly 3,000 years ago. Father, help us to believe. And in the most sober way, help us to realize that you will return in all of your glory, in all of your wonders, in all of your might and majesty. You, O Lord, will return to judge the living and the dead. Help us to believe. And as we believe, may we repent. May we not just be a people who give you lip service. May our faith, may our faith be accompanied with action, with obedience, with service, with worship. Father, you alone are worthy. We thank you for delivering us from sin and death. We thank you for protecting us from all of Satan's accusations, all of his works. We thank you for giving us a refuge and a hiding place in Christ.